you, Linda. For all of you uh, culinary connoisseurs out there, please forgive me for what I'm about to say. I've never really understood pineapple upside down cake. I mean, for starters, pineapple, all right? It's really only good on a couple of things. Pizza, no, don't argue, okay? I'm not even a big fan of it in, in Asian food. The only way, like, pineapple's really good is if it's smothered in Cool Whip. <laughs> I heard you say amen. It was silent, but I heard it. All right, and then you get this idea of, like, an upside-down cake. What's wrong with cake right side up? I mean, is there, is there a problem with that? And all the things in the world that are already backwards, messed up, you know, turned over, why can't we just have cake that is normal and not upside down, right? That's how I felt up until this last week when for some reason I came across a recipe for pineapple upside down cake, which I did not cook, just clarifying, but it had a little bit of history behind this dessert, the origins of pineapple upside-down cake, this website said, date back hundreds of years when people would cook on cast-iron skillets over open fires. When they wanted a sweet treat, they would line the bottom of their pans with fruit and pour batter on top, and when the cake was ready, the pan was flipped over, revealing the gorgeous pattern of caramelized fruit on top. Mmm, someone said amen to that. I didn't even have to ask for that caramelized fruit with warm cake under it? I could get behind that with enough Cool Whip. <laughs> I think Jesus would have liked upside-down cake. I know that's a modern thing to say, but I think he would have. I mean, he liked to flip things upside down. Mmm. Mmm. I don't know if you're mmming at that comment or the cake. We're going to go with the latter. Let's pray. Um, Lord, thank you for a chance, as always, to open your story to us. We recognize that this isn't us putting ourselves in the story that you're writing, but it's you writing a story that we get to see and be a part of. Lord, I pray that uh, our part in it today would be clear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles or your phones or however you get to God's Word, go ahead and grab that, open it up to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. As you're turning, we are still in a series called Offensive Christianity. Who's in, who's out? We've been in this series since last September. We took a break for Christmas and a break in January, and we have since returned. We're doing this series, what we're doing in this series is taking a nice, long, slow walk with Jesus, seeing who he lets in who he engages, who he invites, who he welcomes, who he loves, who he walks with. Now, last week, we saw Jesus inviting in the children. But it was more than just because he liked kids. It was because he wanted to paint this message. He wanted to teach this lesson of the people who are welcome are the ones who come to him unhindered, right? With, without any sort of uh, expectation, they come just desiring to be in relationship and be near to him. Today, we look at two different passages. And we look at how Jesus welcomes in the idea of flipping things upside down, of turning things over, of inviting what seems to be backwards. In Mark chapter 9, verse 30, this is right after Jesus had come down the mountain with his three amigos. The other nine disciples who were left had not been able to heal the boy who had seizures, so Jesus healed him. And then he explained to the disciples in a, in a uh, house later on why they couldn't. And then we get to chapter 9, verse 30. 
It says, leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. And that's important right there, leaving that region. This shows that Jesus is now leaving the safety of the north country where he's been hanging out, and he's going back into the hostile home country on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross. This really is his first steps towards the cross. So leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. Typical men, (laughs) right? I know that all the women are laughing, all the men are like, don't throw us under a bus like that. I mean, so what if the teacher's saying things we don't understand? So what if we don't ask for clarification? Listen, the lesson that Jesus is teaching, and it's not the first time he's teaching it, goes against all the things the disciples had always been taught. It goes against all the things that any Jew would have been taught. Okay, so for them, for a Messiah to suffer, to die, was unheard of. So it's not just the guys not understanding One commentator from the 1950s says there's no such fate could possibly have been in any part of the game plan for any Jew, their understanding of what a Messiah might do. Probably not all Jews at the time believed that God would send a Messiah, but nobody at all believed that if and when he did, the Messiah would suffer and still less have to die. And that's what Jesus was saying. This Messiah has to die. That's upside down from what they would have thought. Now, back in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus had already predicted his death once before. You can either flip there quickly or just listen. It says this, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. Now, that was the time, you remember, that Peter then took Jesus aside and scolded him for talking like that, because the Messiah shouldn't talk like that. During that prediction of his death, we see it pretty, um, I guess, kind of generic. We we see Jesus saying he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the people he's been arguing with for all three years of his ministry, and he's going to be killed and three days later rise from the dead. But then we get to chapter 9, verse 31, and Jesus gets a little more specific. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He'll be killed, but three days later, he'll rise from the dead. So not just he's going to suffer, but he's going to be betrayed, which alludes to the fact that it's personal, that it's somebody close. Now, I don't know how much time passed between uh, verse 32 and verse 33, but we get to verse 33, and we see Jesus, uh, well, Mark, the author, being very specific with the story that he's telling. He's without a doubt trying to make a point. Verse 33 to 35 of Mark chapter 9. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out there on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him, and he said, Whoever wants to be first must be last. Whoever wants to be a servant and be the servant of everyone else. 
So right after the story, this is how Mark puts this, this story together. Right after Jesus says, hey, the Son of Man, the Messiah is going to suffer, he's going to die, you get this next story of the 12 guys who still don't get what's going on, and they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. And I think, honestly, it's a fair argument for them. Because there's three of those 12 that seem like they might be Jesus' favorites, Peter, James, and John. So, of course, they're going to argue at some point saying, look, what part of the recipe are we part of? Are we first? Are we second? Are we third? Do you put us on top? Do you put us on the bottom? What is it? But see, they knew deep down inside that there, wasn't, there was something wrong about that argument. They had this tension, and they didn't want Jesus to pay attention to that. And yet he did. Verse 35 begins, he sat down. Now, that's not just exasperated, tired, after a long walk. For those of you who remember, or those who don't know, when a Jewish rabbi was very, very serious about what he was going to teach, he would sit down. He did that at the beginning of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And here again, Jesus says, uh, essentially, kids, pull up a carpet square. <laughs> I'm about to teach you something that you have to pay attention to. He sat down and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Growing up, I can't tell you how many times that verse was quoted to me in the church potluck line. <laughs> See, I got this thing. If nobody's going to start, I'll go, right? Especially when it comes to food. But I, I seriously, I've lost count as to how many times it'd be like, James, the first shall be last. So come on, right? And they'd put me at the end, and, oh, and by the way, you got to be the servant of all. You're doing dishes later. Oh. Right? Now that I've, I've, I've gone a few times around the sun, I understand why they were doing that. I have teenage sons. If I don't eat first, I don't get to eat. <laughs> okay? You know what I'm saying? Now, if this was the lesson Jesus was trying to teach, fantastic. I'm full-hearted. I'm, I'm like fully supportive of it. If he wants us to let other people go first in the food line, great. But I don't think Jesus was just specifically focusing on church potlucks. And I say that because he brings in the same people we looked at last week. We saw these two verses, but I'm going to say them again. Verse 36 and 37. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me not, welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. Now, if you remember last week, I know it was a long time ago, I said that kids in that culture were not very highly thought of. They didn't have any status or prestige. It was believed that they had nothing to offer. And if they didn't have anything to offer, then they were very low on the totem pole of life. But Jesus flips the script upside down, and he says, you know what? It's the people who don't have anything to offer that actually have the most to offer in the kingdom. He says, you want to talk about greatness? It's the ones who don't have anything to bring me, and yet they still come. It's not about clout. It's not about wealth. It's not about status. These are the great ones. Now, with the risk of ruffling some feathers, I think we're still trying to learn this lesson in the church today, in the big C church. Because how often do we see somebody who is really, really well off financially or really, really athletic and talented and, and they're claiming Christ and we say, oh, God's blessing them. They are great, right? Like the family that owns the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm not questioning their faith. They are filthy rich and they have an extremely strong 
uh, faith that they aren't uh, that they aren't afraid to share. Or the NBA player who's the post-game interview, right? It's like, well, before I answer your question, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gave me these talents when I was 12, and I'm utilizing those. I'm not questioning their faith. Hear me on that. Okay? And I'm not, I'm not knocking uh, finances and wealth. God, God provides for everybody. What I'm, what I'm questioning is when the church or Christians start elevating people because they seem to be a little better off, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, better looking, can talk better. Oh, so God must have really blessed them. They've got more to offer the kingdom. They're great. And Jesus says, hey, come here, kid. You're great. William Barclay, a trusted commentator, says this lesson resonates out into the centuries of church history in which so many people have thought that being close to Jesus, even working full-time for him, made them somehow special. Those who have really understood this message, they know things aren't like that. As Jesus goes to the cross, turning upside down everything his disciples had imagined, he is also turning upside down the way people, including Christians today, still think. Upside down. Hmm. Now we're going to jump to the next passage. If you have a small print Bible, it's probably lower in the page or on the next page. If you have a large print or giant print like mine, you might have to turn a couple of pages to get it. We're in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, where Jesus is still trying to teach this lesson of upside downness. Chapter 10, verse 32. They were now on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe And the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Right? The predictions just keep getting more and more specific. In chapter 9, verse 31, it's, I'm going to be betrayed, and, and then I'll die and rise again. In this one, I'm going to be betrayed back to the religious leaders who will convict me and hand me over to the Romans who will mock me, spit on me, beat me, flog me, then kill me. On the third day, I'll rise again. Things are getting real, and you've got to wonder if what I said last week about Jesus wondering, are they ever going to get it? If that goes through his mind again, because immediately... As soon as he shares this about his his very detailed prediction of his upcoming days and his upcoming death, the text then says uh, in chapter uh, 10, verse 35, then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Then, like right after Jesus says, this is how I'm going to die, pay attention. James and John are like, hey, JC, come here, let's talk for a second. Hey, we've got this question for you. Right? They came over and he said to him, Teacher, we, we want to ask you a favor. Well, what's your request? Jesus asked. And they replied, When you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. <laughs> Come on, guys. Verse 38 Jesus says to them, You guys don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they said, we are able. And Jesus told them, you will indeed 
drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Right after Jesus says, this is how it's going to go down, then those two show up. Now, in Matthew's account, Matthew said it was James and John's mom who came and asked this question. All right, I think Matthew's just trying to, to soften the absurdity of the question. Maybe uh, save face for the, for the two meatheads, all right? Because that's really who I think said it. I think Mark is just like, I'm going to tell you how it is, right? Think about it. These two guys, James and John, they were part of the discussion on the road about who was the greatest. They were two of the three of Jesus' favorites, and they were the two that Jesus didn't say, get behind me, Satan, to. They were two of the three that Jesus pulled in and, you know, let him see him raise a kid from the dead. They, they were two of the three that went up on top of the mountain when Jesus started glowing. Of course, they're going to start thinking to themselves, we're something special. And look, 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 the scene is set. I mean, picture this. Let's not miss this. The scene is set for the, for the triumphant, conquering, oppressor, crushing, dominating Messiah to come into the, the capital and kick some tail. That's what's going on. The text says they were on their way up to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the charge. The disciples are in awe, probably reverting back to what they used to think about the way a Messiah was going to show up and conquer, right? The crowds were gathering. They were following. They were fearful. They were, there was a hum that was turning into a murmur, which was growing into a fever pitch, right? And I picture Rafiki on the Lion King. It is time, right? It is time for the king, the Messiah, to enter Jerusalem and sit on his rightful throne. This is the scene. And, you know, the parade that's going to happen the next day, it doesn't help. It just kind of confirms this scene, this assumption. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 37, in the English Standard Version, I think we've got it up here. Maybe. Maybe not. There we go. And they, James and John, said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And in the New Living that I'm reading from, it says this. Um, when you sit in your glorious throne, on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. It's time, these boys are saying, Jesus, for you to enter your, your glory, for the glory to, to arrive, we want to be sitting next to you when you go and you kick some tail. Uh, Jesus, our eyes are still a little bit burnt from that time you glowed. Remember that? That's glory showing up, right? There's, there's a good many sermons that have been preached on Jesus' response to these guys about the bitter cup of suffering and, and the, the baptism of suffering. Those sermons can be preached another day. Today we're going to jump right back into the lesson that Jesus is teaching about upside-downness. Then we get to verse 41. When the other ten disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Somebody give me another word for indignant. Are you going to mumble it? Angry, okay. Furious? Hurt? Ticked off? offended, all those things, angry, incensed, and understandably so, right? These 12 have been doing life and ministry with Jesus. So Jesus sees the blood starting to boil, and he pulls them over in verse 42. He says, so Jesus called them together, and he said, you guys know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people, 
and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, not, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is so much in that part, in that text. But realistically, it comes back to the same message that Jesus has been teaching both in these two, uh, these two little stories, but also in his entire ministry about greatness, right? Greatness isn't about being first, he says. Greatness isn't about being the biggest, fastest, and strongest. Greatness isn't about who wins, unless it's Gonzaga. <laughs> greatness is determined when you flip things over, Jesus is saying, when you become the slave of others, when the servant is the leader, when, when you're willing to sacrifice for others. And this idea of sacrificing, this idea of, of, of suffering wasn't new for, for these disciples or for Jews. They had been hearing about this since Isaiah prophesied about it in Isaiah 53, 700 years before. This passage uh, where Jesus says to give his life as a ransom has loud echoes to, to Isaiah 53, verse 10. When the, the prophet says, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him, this being the suffering servant, the upcoming Messiah, to cause him grief. Yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. When his life is made an offering, when his life is made a ransom, Jesus is walking into the hardest week of his life. Leading a group of 12 guys who just can't get the idea that flipping things upside down is really how things work the best. And he's leading two brothers who are making this massive request. He is simply trying to flip the cake. And the disciples come, James and John come and say, when you sit in your glory. I had an aha moment this last week when I was reading N.T. Wright's thoughts on this passage. Right? I think for so many Christians, myself included, when we think of Jesus coming in his glory, we think of the transfiguration, right? Bright, shining, glowing, pretty impressive. Or we think of Jesus walking out of the tomb three days later after being resurrected. That's pretty cool, too. We think of Jesus walking through closed doors saying, hey, Thomas, touch the scars in my hand. Or we think of Jesus showing up to the, the 500 people plus on the beach in 1 Corinthians 15. We think of maybe Matthew 28 when Jesus ascends to the Father, right? And he's finally sitting up there. We think of all that when Jesus sits in his glory. That's when he's at his greatest. And yet... N.T. Wright says this, when Jesus sits in his glory with one at his right and one at his left, it would be on the cross. Mm. When Jesus sits in his glory with one at his right and the other at his left, it would be on the cross. Let that sink in, okay? All this talk about greatness that Jesus has been trying to pound into the disciples as he's walked with them for three years, and now started walking towards Jerusalem. This outrageous request for the most powerful seats from James and John, the disciples getting ticked off when right before Jesus says the Messiah is going to sacrifice and die, and then right after they're saying, hey, who's the greatest? Hey, would you let us sit there? Right? After each of these times, Jesus spoke about the last being the first and the slave being the leader and, the, and of serving by giving his life. Jesus kept saying, that is when greatness happens. So it's essentially you saying, look, that is when I will come into my my glory. So what if when Jesus stretched out his arms, that was truly when he was most at his glory? I'd never thought of it like that before this. 
And how's that for backwards? How's that for upside down? How's that for who gets to sit on Jesus' left and his right? Two thieves? <laughs> Not the favorite brothers. They're probably thankful then, right? Just like the pineapple upside down cake, the, the best part is the caramelized pineapples. After flipping the pan, Jesus was at his highest when he was at his lowest. Jesus was the king when he was serving. He was reigning supreme when he was giving up his life. Upside down, anyone? Hmm. So what? Right? What do we do with this? I like to ask that question. How about this? This week as you're going through your everyday life, your normal interactions with people, look for opportunities to turn things upside down. Look for opportunities to serve. Look for opportunities to let other people go first. Look for chances to do what Jesus has done. Don't draw attention to yourself while doing it. Just, just see what it's like to flip things upside down. Will you do that with me this week? Let's pray. Jesus, I've got to admit, this is one of those uh, stories that I don't really like. Because I like the idea of the first being first. Um, and yet, you're very clear here. You're very clear about what greatness is. You're very clear about what leadership is. You're very clear about, about you and your glory, and you're demonstrating that to us. So, Lord, help me learn that lesson. Help us learn this lesson, that you want to welcome in the backwards, the upside down, from what we may think is great. Help us this week to see opportunities to serve others instead of being served, to put others first. I ask you to help us do that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.